0: Okay, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, could somebody read for us verses 8 through 24 of Genesis chapter 3? Anybody feel like reading out nice and clear and loud? Um, thanks, Hal. Thanks for jumping right on in there, my friend. Yeah, Yeah, uh, Chapter 3, verses 8 through 24.
1: Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you he will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains and childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you." He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he dreaded the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
0: Okay. <clears throat> hey, I don't know if y'all have any sort of uh, collective memory of this, but back when I was um, when I was in college, there was this buzzword that was going around that I think it's kind of fallen off the sort of map of cultural descriptions, do you still end up hearing the word postmodern in any of your uh, classes as they refer to sort of our times? Um, You know, the modern period would be this description of Western culture that says, you know, we can advance, we can... Uh, 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 change the world. We can fix it by our own knowledge. You know, mankind has the ability to make the world a better place. That was the modernist spirit. And it led, of course, to a lot of scientific revolutions and things like that. Well, uh, somewhere around the mid-20th century, after a lot of very bloody wars and a lot of uh, conflict and human suffering, uh, people began to look back at the modern world and say, you know, man may not be able to do all that he thinks he does. And so people began to describe the new era, sort of late 20th century, early 21st century, as the post era. And one of the ways in which it was described was by people who basically said, look, <clears throat> the problem with the modern era is that they were looking for these universal truths These ideas that sort of tie all of us together and make us understand everything together. And the postmoderns came along and said, you know what, they were all wrong. Because there really is no sort of overarching idea, overarching like capital T truth that we can say applies to every single person. Some of those people uh, were sort of more existentialist in their bit and would describe it this way. They said, look, there is no one story that sort of unites everyone's individual stories. And the word they used to describe it was um, not just a narrative story, but a meta-narrative a meta narrative meaning something that's above or overarching or or beyond and these these sort of late 21st century philosophers says there is no meta narrative to life well it's interesting that they should bring that up because our whole discussion this summer has been the suggestion that not only is there a meta narrative to life according to the bible But that story is actually the story that underlies and supports and helps us to understand all of our stories. Now, one of the things that you'll find if you look at sort of postmodern psychologists is for a lot of them that began to realize that there was a very deep insecurity that infected us as a culture in the late 20th century. And that insecurity was due to the loss of there being a reason to tie us together as human beings. But the Christian worldview has always been one that basically offered a remarkable level of, of stability and a remarkable level of certainty. So much so that guys like uh, Donald Macleod, the great Scottish uh, theologian, still living, lives in Edinburgh, got to meet him a couple years ago, amazing man, in his book of Faith to Live By he says this, he says, Ancient man lived in an environment which was in effect demonized. And those demons made human existence highly unpredictable. A, this is a great contrast, though, to the state of things among the covenant people of God. You see, Israel had one God, and that God had made a covenant with his people. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this covenant, this bond that God makes with his people. And in that covenant, God gave a framework for stability. That's kind of what I wanted you to get tonight. There's a framework for stability that helps you know what in the world is going on in your life. The first man knew where he stood with God, and they knew where they stood in terms of the covenant. They knew that if they kept that covenant, they would enjoy the blessing of God. This is the foremost factor in our religious security, and I'm going to say tonight, all of your security as a human being. As we live in relationship to our environment, we have a confidence based on the covenant of God. Look, y'all, in this divine story that we've seen sort of unfolded throughout the early chapters of Genesis, we found that God created this beautiful creation for man to enjoy and wanted to have a bond with him that was pictured in the very bonds of marriage. And yet last week we found out that man had no desire to be a part of that at all. And so he broke that covenant. And suddenly at the very heart of this story is this temptation for it to be a tragedy now, I'm saying, though, that psychologically speaking, there's even more than that that happened because eventually people begin to have no stability whatsoever. Why? Well, the Bible has an explanation for why oftentimes we have this sort of nagging sense as human beings of being unhinged. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes in the most stressful points of your life, I'll bet you've said something to your friends like this. To be honest with you, I feel like my whole life is just coming apart right now. Why do we use that kind of lingo? Because we long and are designed for things to kind of be integrated. What McLeod is saying is, is that only as we live in right relationship to God can we really enjoy that integration, Integration of mind, integration of relationship, and integration to our world. Things are a mess, but God comes in and begins to give a promise that he's going to fix that mess here in the very early chapters of Genesis. Okay? So that's, that's the topic for the night. I simply want to look at two things, right? The result of the fall, and then the remedy of the fall. We've got to come to grips with what we talked about last week, and I want to look at the results of the fall and then the remedy of the fall. Okay, <clears throat> first of all, What happened in this great cosmic car wreck uh, of the fall, right? Um, uh, Look, uh, mankind was cast out. That's the ultimate result. God had made a place where Adam and Eve could experience human flourishing. And suddenly they got kicked out. Now, Now, I thought about spending sort of the first illustration of the... First illustration of the sermonette tonight, talking about that sort of childhood experience and fear of having been cast out. I don't know how many of you ever experienced. It. Some of these, were, some of you were athletic enough for this to never happen to. But <laughs> did you ever not get picked? You know, for the teams on kickball or. You know, when you were dividing up sort of groups and you heard that there was a sort of cool group at school and you suddenly realized just how out you were. I'm not going to try to conjure up any of those sort of uh, uh, feelings. I'm just saying that the feeling of alienation is primary to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That's the word I want you to grab hold of. If you were to define in one word what happened in Genesis chapter 3, it was alienation. People were alienated. They stepped outside of the context in which they were, intended, or they were created to experience. Uh, think of, uh, of our goldfish. Our goldfish now are going, they're almost a year old. Like in October, would it be a year old? We have two goldfish who are the most hardy like, uh, in terms of like fish longevity. I gave them a week when they came into our house, but for some weird reason, they are flourishing. You can go and visit them after Bible study tonight. Um, If we were to take those fish, though, out of their fish bowl and to lay them on the table, they would experience alienation because outside of water is not what they were created to enjoy. Does that make sense? We were created to flourish in the garden, not just necessarily because it was lush, beautiful, and needed to be tended, but because God was there. And because man was taken away from that, there is from that period on from the very first man throughout all of his posterity, uh, a.k.a. everyone in this room, <laughs> alienation marks our existence. How so? Three ways. Number one, alienation from God. That's the first thing that we see is that alienation was first. What we find in the passage that Howe was reading is apparently Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Uh, there was a sense in which there was a, a relationship there. And so when you get to verse 8 and all of the, and, and, and Adam and Eve start to hide, uh, the Hebrew in that verse literally reads, they hid from God's face. In other words, there was with God a sense of actually being connected to Him, of knowing who He was and knowing that He was on your side. But the very first thing that happened to, to Adam and Eve when they sinned is they immediately know that my relationship to God is one of distance. He's separated. He's somewhere else. He, <laughs> um, and, and, and what we find out, interestingly enough, later on in the Bible, is that sense of distance is actually imagined. And it's imagined on our part because we don't want to face what it means for us to be in the same context. In other words, what mankind did in their sense of alienation is that they psychologically pushed God, well actually to use Paul's words in Ephesians, Romans 1, held the truth of God down. Because if they admitted that he was there, they had to admit that they were guilty. And so this sense of distance, this sense of being alienated came up out of man's own sinful imagination. Alienation from God. Um... Look, <laughs> to me, this is kind of one of the rubber meets the road kind of questions. If you were to walk across the old Miss campus and ask people and take a poll, do you believe in God? My guess is 90, 95% plus would say, sure, I believe in God. <laughs> but then if you were to follow that up by the question, okay, yes, but do you believe in a God who actually uh, expects perfection of people, uh, judges, sinners in hell, and calls all people to live holy lives? My guess is your your statistics is going to drop off a little bit, right? The idea that there would be a God who is not sort of a heavenly, smarmy grandfather uh, is uncomfortable to people. Maybe it's uncomfortable to us in this room. But yet our first (laughs) great-great-great-grandparents sensed in a very real way that there was something about my rebellion that meant that me and him are not in good terms. Okay, alienation from God. Secondly, though, there was alienation from each other. This is great because we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I won't belabor it now. What is the first thing that they notice? They hide from God's face, but then what do they do from each other? They look at each other and they're like, you're naked and I'm naked. First thing that they notice. Now, Now, that's awkward on multiple levels. Theologically, it's awkward because they first knew something that they had never known, and that's shame. In other words, they're not only alienated from God. Our relationship to God is so fundamental to our existence that if this vertical relationship is not right, we inevitably struggle with our horizontal relationships with each other. Now that's a really big concept. Honestly, we could, we could do an entire summer on that one concept alone. But I want to plant that seed in you to begin to think about that. If you don't know what it means to be in right relationship to God, your relationships to others are going to suffer. And vice versa, to look into, to investigate, to grow in one's relationship to God is to enhance and begin to flourish our relationship with each other. Works both ways. But immediately they begin to look at each other and they suddenly find that their instinct and their urge or their urges are selfish. Uh, look, y'all. It's worth um, it's worth asking the question um, in dealing with your relationships: Is it always somebody else's fault? <laughs> um, the fall is the great um, humility inducer. <laughs> when you read it, you, you realize that the uh, that the Bible is not a compliment to humankind. Uh, I know we struggle with this because a lot of us grew up saying, "No, no, no! Mankind is basically good. Isn't man basically a good, hum- a, a good creature?" The Bible's answer to that is that's a complicated statement because he was created with great dignity, but because of his rebellion from God and because of his alienation from God and his alienation from each other, he is bound to selfishness. And guess what? It's natural selfishness. So the truth of the the matter is, is that evil extends from the heart of man. He is the source of his own demise. He is the source of all sin. That's where the alienation is coming from, and that means that we don't care about each other. (laughs) Is it ever, is it ever your fault, or is it always your circumstances' fault? Is it always the people who didn't care about you enough? Is it always your parents' fault? Is it always your professor's fault? Is it always the circumstances surrounding you or is it ever the the moment, do you ever come to a moment where you look and say, you know, actually the problem with this is that I'm just selfish. It takes understanding the fall to really grasp at that. But then thirdly and finally, alienation is not only with God and with each other, but it's also with the whole creation. Now this is a very weird topic that I wish I had more time to talk about. But you get these interesting places in the Scripture. Well, first of all, in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. In other words, this unique place where they met with God, where literally heaven and earth intersected, right, in the garden. Suddenly they can't be there. That's not home to them anymore. And they have to go out into the wild. To some degree, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the creation itself is submitted to frustration, right? I don't know how, uh, but the creation as we see it, whether it be the sky, whether it be trees, whether it be grass, whether it be even human ingenuity, is somehow frustrated by our selfishness and our sin. And Paul promises us something very exciting, that the whole creation even now is groaning, longing for God to finally bring about the redemption of the sons of men so that it can be what it was intended to be and not what it is right now. now I don't know about you, but I've seen some pretty beautiful stuff in my day. <laughs> some things that were inspiring. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes a nice stroll through the woods or through uh, uh, even across town in the grove or something can kind of be a little healing, you know? There's something sort of emotionally settling about getting out in nature, Right? That's creation subject to frustration, though. Paul promises that eventually it's going to be released from that. And I always think that's good to implant in our imagination to think, I wonder what that'll be like. I have no idea. But it'll probably be kind of cool. (laughs) Whatever vistas have moved you to poetry at at this time in your life will be nothing compared to what God's going to do. We are alienated. Mankind struggles with a sense of place. Every one of you knows what I'm talking about. Um, What was it like your freshman year? when you moved into the dorm. Think about that. I mean, you're you're not normal if that was the easiest thing in the world. Wow, this is so great. I'm in a cinder block cell with one window and a door and a stranger. I'm so glad to be here. What happened when you were suddenly ripped up out of a place of comfort, a home, you know, comfortable places and whatnot? I used to make fun of the fact that whenever I went to uh, the girls' dormitories on move-in day to sort of introduce myself and give my little uh, personal invite to RUF, it was really funny that I, um, I used to always make fun of the fact that I would always meet dad, and then I would meet mom, and then I would meet mom's friend. Uh, and it took me a couple years to realize that it was mom's friend is uh, family interior decorator, because they were there to decorate the girls' rooms. Um, don't, don't laugh. You know, people that someone some people in this room had mom's friend come over to decorate their room. And I used to scoff at that until I suddenly realized, though, you know, that's actually kind of important. And I see girls just get all giddy about the fact, go, look, matching comforters. <laughs> you know, we did our colors the same. Um, And I used to think that's really goofy, but I realized that until you make that space a home, you don't feel like you've got a sense of place. But the funny thing is, there's no amount of comforters that actually really settles it, does it? Because you suddenly realize, I'm out of place here because I don't know where I belong. I don't know where I fit. Roommate situations can be a very big deal, and it's an echo of our alienation from the creation. That's what I'm trying to suggest to you, okay? Look. Big heading over the fall means that we were alienated, is that we feel like we're out of place, something is wrong, I'm on the bad side of God, (laughs) other people drive me crazy, and everything is about me, and I don't feel like I've got a sense of place, hence the cosmic car wreck of the fall. Okay, so here's the question, what's God going to do about it? What's he going to do about it? In my opinion, Genesis 3 is not all bad news. It looks like all bad news. We've got some pretty ugly judgments that came. But in my opinion, what you begin to see from the, very, from the very opening chapters of the Bible is that God is going to fix this problem. He's going to come in and apply some kind of solution to this particular deal. Um, now look, I know for some of you you're kind of like, well, that was kind of a downer. Why do we got to go through all that bad stuff? Look, um, I don't know... <laughs> I want you simply to consider that, that one of the reasons why the truths of the Christian faith oftentimes rest so lightly on us is because, honestly, we don't really look very carefully at where we are prior to receiving that. My guess is if Christianity sort of remains outside of you as kind of a kind of ho-hum sort of topic... It may very well be that it's we haven't looked very carefully into where from whence we come. In my illustration that I've used probably once a semester since I got here is the whole illustration of what if I paid one of your bills, right? What if I walked up to, you know, Will and I said, Will, I paid one of your bills for you, and then walked away. Will has no idea which bill that I paid. It might be that I paid back the $5 that Will owed to Brad, In which case, he would think to himself, oh, well, that was kind. Um, You know, preacher boy, thanks for that. Doing a good deed, right? Um, His joy, though, would be a good bit different if he found out that I paid the rest of his bill that he's trying to (laughs) get together to raise his support for the RUF internship at uh, North Carolina. (laughs) That'd be a little bit different. The, the, The size of the joy that he would experience upon finding out that the bill was paid is directly proportional to his understanding of the size of the bill. Catch that? Little bill, little joy. Large bill, hefty bill, unpayable bill, big joy. Think about it, y'all. Is it one of the reasons that why we yawn at the gospel is because we don't think the gospel had all that much to fix in us? We have to consider our alienation as deeply as we can before we understand the beauty of the cure. And the cure is wonderful. Three things. What happens? Three things that happen. God does three things as he does. The first thing that he shows is he shows his initiative. I love the way it puts that. God looks and says, what I'm going to do is I am going to put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to the serpent. In other words, God looks and says, I'm going to be the one who puts enmity. Enmity, of course, enemy, uh, uh, distance. In other words, what the woman and the man have done in their sin is they have, um, how can I say this? They have forged an alliance, right? It's like Survivor. They have an alliance with the devil. And God looks and says, I'm going to break that alliance. I am going to be the one who breaks that alliance. And this is an interesting thing because God looks and says, I am going to try to be the one who initiates this. You have sold your soul. And there's nothing that you can do to work your way out of this. I have to be the one to fix it. Now, if you want to ask questions about this during Q&A time, please feel free. That's what question and answer time is for. But I simply want to offer to you that the Bible is overrun with references to how important it is that you believe that God is the author and finisher of your faith. (laughs) That the fact that you're following Jesus right now is not due in any measure to any goodness inside of you but is due because of His initiative taking into your life. Now, I'm not going to utter the P word. We don't say predestination anymore out loud because we all have brain hemorrhages whenever we hear those kinds of things. And I don't want to get into the philosophical arguments. We do that for Q&A time. That's what it's for. But I simply want to offer to you one small thought that the ancient theologians who did embrace, and not all of them did, but who did embrace this idea that God is absolutely sovereign in the conversion of human beings, did so not because of some philosophical little hoops they were trying to you know, manipulate people with. They did so because they knew they were that screwed up. <laughs> and we needed a God who would take initiative to do those kinds of things in us and for us and on our behalf. And, and, and I'm, I'm suggesting the echoes of it come from Genesis chapter 3. I will put the enmity. I have to. Because you you have you have vowed yourself, you've made an alliance, and I've got to be the one who comes in and breaks that. Look, when you get married and you forge that covenant, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, we refer to that as a bilateral covenant. You know what does that mean? Uh, bilateral means uh, you have an agreement, and then you have an agreement. Whenever we do the vows at a wedding, you both have to say them, right? Um, you know. Do you, Kennedy, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And we go through it that way. And then she has to say, do you take it? You both have to exchange the vows. That's a bilateral covenant. Y'all, with our relationship with God, it's a unilateral covenant. In other words, it comes in one direction. The terms and the conditions are both set and, drum roll please, met by God. There's no even exchange. <laughs> there is no quid pro quo with God. He saves me when I give Him the gift of my faith. Hmm. That's what I'm questioning that the Bible teaches, right? Bible's picture is this. <laughs> People look and say, well, I was in the ocean and I was drowning and God threw out the life preserver, but I had to grab hold of the life preserver. And my response is, that's not the Bible's picture of it. Because the Bible's picture is, is that I'm actually on the bottom, (laughs) deceased. (laughs) And somebody's got to actually come down, pull me up to the surface, and revive this dead person. God is the one taking initiative in us, is what we get from the opening thing, uh, opening verse of the Bible. Okay, so that's the first thing, God's initiative. Secondly, there's God's discipline. Now look, I know that the, the judgments that God gives to the man and the woman are kind of a downer. And we look at that stuff because it, I mean, it really it says it explicitly. I will increase your pains in childbearing. I was just having a great conversation with uh, uh, some of y'all know Stephen Taylor uh, on campus who runs the Epiphany Campus Ministry here. Incredibly great guy. I've got to be good friends with him over the last year or so. And his wife is newly pregnant. And um, uh, <laughs> those first early couple of weeks... Bless her heart. She has had a rough time just vomiting all the time. She's like, I think about food and I throw up. Um, And I looked at him and I was like, pains in childbirth. This is where it all started. And we look at that and you kind of look and say, God's the one who says that I increase it. And you're kind of like, whoa, God, why in the world would you do that? Well, look, y'all. It's really important to realize that whenever God comes in to deal with people, it's important to know where you stand with him before he exercises that discipline. Why do bad things, hard things, challenging things, hurtful things happen to me? Why is God allowing this to happen to me? Well, look, because of his initiation, if he has begun to work in me, what that means is, is his discipline actually can be good news. For someone who actually is in right relationship with God, his discipline is never punishment but surgery, right? The the encouragement that we have is knowing that if this relationship is right between me and God, then whenever I'm going through difficult times, it's not because He's mad at me. I'm not being punished. I'm not on His wrong side but it's actually him trying to mold me and make me something. The curses that God levels to Adam and the curses that he levels to Eve, in my opinion, were ways of trying to push them to race back to God. Adam's judgment comes upon what? Comes upon his work. Men will always struggle with their vocation. Gentlemen, for the rest of your life, after people learn your name, you'll get asked the second question. Nice to meet you, Kennedy. So... What's, it come, what's coming right after that? What do, you do? what do you do? It's what we do, ladies. It's, it's the only thing we are judged by. What do we do? Be careful when your future husband loses their job. You're headed for rocky waters there. The woman's judgment comes upon what? Your desire will be for the man, but he will rule over you. In other words, instead of sort of life-giving connection, there's going to be tyranny. It's going to be something that you're going to want. You're going to want to try to grasp at it yourself. And you're going to want to try to fix things yourself in ways in which you never will be able to. And the childbearing will be the very thing that will cause you to struggle. There will be pain in childbearing. And that ain't just talking about birthing babies, which is painful enough as it is. Trust me, Ginger went through it with Luke without pain medication. I always want to sing your praises for that because that's a feat. Not intentional. <laughs> she was not no, intending. Was not to <laughs> That's right. You know one of them brave people who did it. Um,
1: and he was it. The,
0: the pain in childbearing um, comes because with a woman she begins to look and say with a child there can be this person with whom I can meaningfully connect because my husband is so selfish I can't connect with him. That's the rest of the pain in childbearing. She wants to know that she's nurtured, that she's connecting deeply with people. And even in children, it's going to be painful. Because one day that child's going to want to leave. Why is it, ladies, that whenever I talk to you, you always talk about you doing this with your mothers in high school? Why? Because in high school, you started to leave. And she was none too happy about that. Because from the moment you were born, you needed her for everything. So suddenly in high school, she started creating systems that made sure that you kept needing her. Ah, now suddenly we're explaining our family dynamics now. Look, y'all, God, God gives these curses to look and say, I'm trying to get those to drive you to me. So that you can look around in despair of ever being able to fix yourself. Okay, last thing. God's initiative, God's discipline, and finally, God's covering. Okay, I talked about this uh, a, a while back, that Adam and Eve sort of try to sew together fig leaves, you know, and it's not this sort of lovely off-the-shoulder ensemble that they're making. They probably look incredibly ridiculous trying to cover themselves in leaves. Um, what does God do? He makes them coverings. Now, let me ask you a question. In order to be made an animal skin covering, what, happens, what has to happen to that animal? Animals got to die. What you have in Genesis chapter 3 is what theologians call the proto-euangelion. That's your $5 word that you learned, so it made your trip tonight worth it. Proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first. Euangelion, statement of the gospel. The first statement of the gospel comes when God all of a sudden takes an animal and he kills that animal and says, this creature must die in order for you to be covered. In order for your shame to be covered, something has to substitute for you. You will never cover your shame on your own. Something else has to die instead. And all of a sudden, what do we get? We get the first little glimmer of the fact that God's going to say, and guess what? In order to fix this ultimate problem, I am going to be the one who dies. I am going to be the one who sacrifices myself so that you can be covered. y'all, this is the best story. <laughs> it's a great story because it's the kind of stories that we love. The stories that move you the most are the ones where everything is going, and all of a sudden there's a conflict, there's trouble, but then all of a sudden, right at the end, when everything is the most hopeless, and mankind is the most unable to fix himself, the hero rushes in and gives his own life for the life of the person. Aren't these the stories that move us to tears? That draw us out in the most sort of it, uh, draws out of us inspiration in the most profound ways. From the opening chapters of the Bible, we find out that the reason why those stories move us is because it's part and parcel of the story which ought to be moving us. Okay, all right.